Welcome to another episode of Blog Code Podcast, where tech is simple. I'm your host, Diana Aguilar, and today I give you an amazing talk with tech entrepreneur and author Jan Pritzker, who recently published his latest book, Inventing Bitcoin. Fair warning, this interview was recorded back in September, but you'll hardly notice as the topics we talk about remain just as fresh. And on a personal note, this was a pretty good conversation. So, well, I'll let you to it. Enjoy! Today we have a very interesting guest to refresh. Uh, this is Jan Pritz, uh, Pritzker, sorry, because he's Russian and I'm, <laughs> I'm learning how to say his name. You did it right. right. now, live, okay, it's Pritzker, Jan Pritzker. He's the author, author of the book Inventing Bitcoin. So welcome, Jan. Thank you Thank so you, much Thank for you. the time today, yeah. So, Jan, you wrote this book to explain Bitcoin as easily as possible, which is very much welcome. <laughs> and I would like to know, first of all, what got you into writing it in the first place? Yeah, so uh, I got into Bitcoin. I mean, I've, I've known about Bitcoin for a long time, but I, I started getting down the rabbit hole in 2016. Um, and I found myself, like many people who get into Bitcoin, just talking about it all the time uh, to all my friends and stuff like that, right? And I couldn't really stop talking about it. They got really annoyed at me. Um, but like a lot of people had questions and I didn't feel like I could um, explain it very well. So I started learning how to explain Bitcoin. Um, and I watched a lot of videos. I watched a lot of Andreas Antonopoulos videos and I started reading the books that were out there. And I realized that all the content out there was, was good, but a lot of it was really, really deep. Like uh, Mastering Bitcoin, for example, a great book, but very deep, very technical, very code oriented. It's not something I would give to the average person. Um, so I started giving talks at high schools. I have some, some friends who are high school teachers and their um, math students were interested in Bitcoin. So I started giving these talks. And as I was preparing for the talks, I started like really figuring out how to explain Bitcoin and started writing down notes. And these notes turned into essays and the essays turned into chapters. And all of a sudden I realized I had a book in front of me. So I said, <laughs> okay, I have to... I have to figure out where this goes and see if I can actually make a book that's really, really short, um, really easy to understand, but at the same time, give people enough depth where they come away understanding like how Bitcoin actually works under the hood. And that's okay, kind of what so, led me to write the book. Yeah. Okay. But so, so let me get this straight. You went full Pokemon evolution here from <laughs> the guy who is freaking annoying at parties talking about Bitcoin to be <laughs> the person who actually has the answers in a book. Oh my God, that's the complete evolution. You didn't just stay in the first phase where most people are right now. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, my, thank you. <laughs> I, my background is uh, in technology, so I know technology really well. I, have, you know, I can understand it pretty well. And once I got into understanding Bitcoin, I just realized that there was so much there. And it wasn't even, um, you know, it wasn't just technology. It was also economics and all kinds of other stuff that wasn't involved, that it really needed to be made um, more digestible. You know, there's just way too much content out there. And uh, so, yeah, I just, I, I had to do it. You know, I feel like I, I was doing a good job explaining it, 
but I could do better if I wrote it down in a consistent format. And that's why I did the book. Now, excellent. And Jan, in this case, would you agree then that there's not so much material right now that is actually um, focused on people who doesn't have any economic or technical background, right? When yeah, it's learning Bitcoin. I, I would agree to some degree. It's getting better. There's a lot of new stuff coming out. Um, I really like the new uh, little Bitcoin book that was put out by Jimmy Song and a bunch of other people. Um, you know, sh short materials are hard to come by. I think there's a lot of good long form content that gives you deep dives, but I think that a lot, a lot of authors tend to write books at their own level. So, you know, if you're a, a technology person, you write a technology book that's really, really deep on the uh, how to program, right? If you're an mm. economist, you get really deep on the economics. It's harder to write a book um, or it takes a certain different kind of focus to write a book that's focused at a, a beginner audience. And I think that's where we could benefit the most with Bitcoin to have more people onboarded is to have them understand it at a beginner level, but also feel like they could then go on and explain it to their friends and defend some of the ideas uh, about Bitcoin because you can't defend those ideas if you don't understand how it works. So like, you know, people say there's 21 million Bitcoins, but you can say that, but then people say, well, how come, you know, I can't just go and make more. Um, and it's going to be very hard for you to defend that statement unless you understand what, how the, how the whole system is working. Oh, so that's why you went straight to the high school, right? Because you were about to get burned. You wanted to, you wanted the burn of the questions that you couldn't answer. So you could like, you, you went to like a military there, <laughs> like in a military training to, to answer right. the questions. Okay. Yeah, high school level is, I mean, that's actually why I originally started writing the book. I was thinking it was going to be um, very high school level. Uh, there's even some remnants of that, like uh, where I talk about people going to parties or whatever, because it was targeted to, you know, or I talked about Snapchat because I was trying to make it accessible to high school students. But then I re realized that um, more than high school students could benefit from this. In fact, pretty much anybody, just your average person on the street with a high school level understanding of math should be able to understand Bitcoin. We need to get it to that level. So that's kind of where, you know, the, the idea came from. Okay, cool. And Jen, we're going to get a little bit, um, we're going to go deep in here because I have a very generic questions for you that each person uh, responds differently. Okay. Okay, Jen, are you a Bitcoiner? Straight up. And <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I am a Bitcoiner straight up. Um, what does that mean to be a Bitcoiner? Well, so, you know, I think that um, Bitcoin is is a symbolic of an evolution in our society. Uh, I believe that we are headed towards a society that's going to be fully digital. Um, like we're going to all going to be digital natives, right? For example, my kids, you know, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Um, they're growing up with iPads. They're growing up with Alexa. Like they voice control their environment, um, you know, and for them, they see money. They already know money is digital, right? They already see uh, our normal everyday usage, we use credit cards, we use Apple Pay, which is even more magical, we just kind of wave a watch. Um, they already see that that's what money is. Money is just like a motion you make with your hand, right? Uh, something that happens on your phone. So we're headed towards this world and it could go in two different ways. It could go completely digital and completely uh, central control, like what we've seen in China, where we have something like WeChat, which does you know the majority of the uh, financial transactions and then the government gets to watch every what everybody's doing. Um, or it could go towards the direction of freedom, which is what I believe Bitcoin symbolizes. Bitcoin gives us that digital money, but it gives us back the idea of cash, where the money itself isn't uh, going through anybody's 
um, you know, central control in order to transfer from person to person and nobody's in charge of, of issuing it. So I think that's, that's the choice that we want. And so why, why I call myself a Bitcoiner is I, I'm fighting for this, right? I'm fighting for a future that is uh, based on liberty rather than oppression. And I think if we take away the government's ability to oppress people through digital means, then we, we head towards a world where uh, people are more free. And I think when people are more free, then everybody's happier. I think we can all agree on that. Huh. Well, we can say that freedom is a psychological construct because, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, everybody, everybody is free in their own mind, depending on what they think, basically. So talking about freedom, because I have heard that a lot. How do you explain a four-year-old that he's free if he uses Bitcoin? Well, I don't know if a four-year-old can understand it, especially you know, I'm lucky to live in, in the United States, which is a generally quote unquote. Well, free enough, you have to, you have to, wanna, you're going to have to explain it to a four year old because how, how, how old are your kids? <laughs> <laughs> Three and five. Yeah. So I actually was, I was trying to explain to my daughter, um, she's just not interested in money yet. And that's, that's the funny thing is because if you live in America, you could be insulated from money, like for a long time, you don't have to think about money as a kid for a long time. You're not like out in the street working. Um, you know, when, when we were immigrating, uh, I actually was like walking in Italy, we were, we were immigrating through Italy and I was in, on the beach in Italy selling stuff that we brought with us from Russia, like on the, just walking along the beach trying to sell, um, you know, uh, thermometers to people. <laughs> so I know what it's like to work as a kid, but you know, my kids won't know that. Right. So it's really hard for them to understand money even. So I tried to give them abstract ideas about it, but it's hard to understand that. Um, I think kids could definitely stand to learn more about what money is in general. And I think most people in general don't understand what money is, right? They just, they, they don't understand that they're not free to spend their money as they want until it happens that they have to do something with their money that, you know, the government doesn't want. And uh, I lived through that, right? I, I left uh, the former Soviet Union with my parents and we were like, uh, we were only able to exchange a certain amount of money, $100 per person when we left. That's, that's when you know that you're not free with your money. The money is not portable. But you're not going to know that if you live all your life in America, everything's going to be fine, right? So I think it, it takes some, some amount of experience with, with oppressive regimes to understand that that could happen in your country. And you could go from being a rich country to a poor country. Your economy could collapse. Your government could turn on um, economic controls and you won't be able to leave the country with your money. And that's, that's what happens all over the world. But yeah, it's hard to explain to a four-year-old, especially in America. <laughs> Yeah, because you already started with the dark talk of in my day. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. No, and you have a, a kick ass uh, story to go with. Like, you must hear me because I came from the Soviet Union. And when <laughs> in my days. <laughs> right. In my days, like, we really we couldn't hold US dollars. I mean, I, you know, you come from Venezuela, you know that this is something that can happen, right? Most people that that come from countries that are generally healthy they don't ever think that this could happen in their country. They don't think that, you know, the government could step in and like shut down the banks or, or tell them they can't leave the country. Like this stuff that most people don't even consider as a possibility. No, um, but, because they already <laughs> went through like crazy stuff like monarchy, I guess. <laughs> they, they already went through all the wars and, 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 and all, the, all the Viking stuff, you know, they, they, they already have their, their share of craziness in right. history. Uh, you know, we're, we're just catching up. 
That's what I keep yeah. telling people. <laughs> so I that's the thing. Is like, we're catching up. I mean, Venezuela is only 200 years old. Right. Uh, and you cannot compare it with a, with a, I don't know, with, with United Kingdom, you know? No, you can't. With Iceland. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I think that, yeah, some of the stuff is in our past, but I don't necessarily know that the future is completely going to be free of, of this problem because if you look at even America, right, it's supposed to be a very free country, but we've given up a lot of our rights in the last, especially like the last, you know, 20 years from, you know, from 9-11. Um, we gave up a lot of our rights of, of what we expect. Like we used to go, be able to go to the airport and like walk up to the gate. Now we get, you know, x-ray padded down, right? There's, there's all of these rights that we give up over time because of safety concerns. So I could very easily see everybody in America just saying, okay, cool. Um, you know, we're just going to use digital payments uh, because it's convenient. We're all going to start using Apple Pay. We're all going to start using credit cards, cash will be eradicated. And then the government will step in and say, well, you know, there's terrorism. We have to watch every payment for terrorism. Of course, we will give away our data to stop terrorism, right? And then all of a sudden, you get somebody in charge who wants to do something like uh, the policies of Chavez. Like, that could be implemented here. We have socialists that want to be, you know, in charge. And uh, now they have the levers, right? They have the they have the button that they can push to print more money. They have the button they can push to stop uh, dissidents from uh, performing certain economic transactions. So if we give away those rights, then it will be very hard to ever get them back. And there's no guaranteeing that our culture is strong enough to prevent us from sliding into some kind of totalitarian society like has happened all over the world. Okay. Now, um, you don't tell that to your kids, right? Because no, no. Because it traumatized is... me, and I have been true in this world, so. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't no. worry. Uh, but, but yeah, Jan, I would like to know more about your experience as an immigrant then, because I didn't know any of the stuff that, that you're telling me. At least I didn't have to sell anything on the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I haven't. Well, anyway. <laughs> Hopefully I won't. <laughs> but... Yeah. Yeah, how, how was your experience in, in the first place? What did you guys live? What did your family live? Uh, so we actually lived in Ukraine, in Kiev. Um, Kiev was a very big city. It was like the, the capital of Ukraine and used to be the capital of, of Russia, actually. Um, so Kiev it was a big city. You know, my life was not bad in Russia, okay? I'm sure it was not as bad as, as Venezuelan life. Um, but the thing is, it was, um, there were shortages everywhere, right? So like we had to stand in line for bread or other goods and uh i didn't know it was not normal i was just a child so for me it's not like i, I thought it was bad I, and generally people didn't know it's like people in russia had no information about the outside it was very limited access to information especially since there was no internet the tv was completely state controlled right we had really tight controls over what kind of stuff came over the border so most people just didn't know that um that living in a, a society where there was a lot of scarcity was like nor not normal you know, um, so you saw a line somewhere, you stood in the line, you didn't necessarily even know what they were giving out. And so you got whatever they had that day. And then like you got some bread or some milk or whatever, uh, or some other, you know, clothing, then you try to trade it with other people for the things that you did actually need. So there was a big black market system, just people like making a black market economy to make anything work. Um, but again, at, for me, I was a kid. So most of this I know through my parents. Um, and then when we left, it was 1989, it was pretty much already the collapse of the Soviet Union had already started and the borders were opened up and um, we left and they gave us, they allowed us to exchange $100 worth of Soviet rubles 
per person. So basically we had a family of four. So we left with $400 in, in our pockets and four suitcases, right? Um, so that's what, that's what we had. And, and we actually, everybody at that time was immigrating through kind of uh, where you stayed a little bit in Austria and a little bit in Italy. And then they figured out where you would go. So like we were, we were Jewish. So the Jews that were immigrating were basically given an option or were essentially assigned to go to Israel or the United States, depending on where you had uh, relatives. So it was like through a third or second cousin of my grandpa that was living in the United States that was able to get us over there. So we spent some time in Austria and Italy, and that's where, you know, we sold the stuff that we took with us. And we kept getting information uh, from people who are already immigrating, like what was, what was good to sell. So we knew that in Italy, people were selling thermometers for whatever reason. This was something that like Russian thermometers were, <laughs> were, were in demand, um, as well as glass cutters of all things. Those are the things that we brought with us, uh, thermometers and glass cutters, because that's what we get our hands on to sell. <laughs> so that's what I was selling on the beach. <laughs> okay, so that was that was your childhood. <laughs> that was my childhood. <laughs> no, my childhood. My childhood was good. I mean, uh, it sounds like weird. I, I was just that, I was doing that for a few weeks. We were in Italy for about a month, and I think no, I, I just imagined you having the hell the hell of a time. Like, oh yes, the beach. <laughs> no, no for me, right? Like, it was the, fun. The, the I was, okay, yeah, but but the beach. Like yeah, a, I was on the beach. I was like running around and just like running around selling a thermometer yeah. in the beach. I mean, yeah. And like, the thing is, people would just give me money because I was a kid. They were like, you know, they were sorry for this kid there selling thermometers. <laughs> so they would like not even buy my thermometers. They were just giving me money. So oh, I was, because like, you were a kid, kid. That, that's yeah. probably right. like that's what it is. Oh, he doesn't even talk like us. Oh, look at him. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, cute immigrant child. Like, give him some money. So yeah, we actually did decent there. I think we collected some good money, and. uh and then we made our way over to America, and after that, things were pretty good. So, well, we're, my parents worked their asses off and uh, got good jobs, and we were able to climb out of poverty, and so that was pretty awesome. Um, but <laughs> will you describe you know, that part of your life as poor? Uh, I mean, we were. I, I, I did again. I was a child, so I never felt poor. I think my my parents always made it um, made our life really good, even when we weren't particularly wealthy. Um, I mean, you know, we lived in a small apartment and like in the first year when we got to America, it was, I was like seven and a half. And within the first year, my dad already like worked. He was working as like a photographer and some other stuff. Um, his actual profession was a civil engineer, but he was just doing stuff uh, on the side. And he like saved up enough money to buy me a computer within that first year because he like knew priorities, like priorities, <laughs> get a computer, like and this was, I mean, this was early. This was in 1990, right? So, like, I got my first computer. Um, it was a Commodore 64, some used, you know, junkie computer. But my dad really wanted that in our house so that I would learn that stuff because he saw that as the future. So, super thankful to him for realizing that. Uh, and so, getting I should be speaking with your dad. Because that's the <laughs> real sure. visionary of this conversation. So <laughs> Yeah, my dad and my mom for sure. Yeah. yeah. They they saw I mean they they were definitely smart and they saw the collapse of the Soviet Union coming and they saw that we needed to get out of there and thank God they did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's uh it's very particular to realize that it doesn't matter really uh where it hits you. Immigration is very similar in all cases, at, at least at, at first, you know, like, I don't have, I, well, I don't have a, as well a, a, as, as a, such a, such a good story as yours, because you actually have the mm -hmm. immigrant story that I have heard in movies <laughs> all the time. Oh, yeah. I came to this country <laughs> yeah. with $400 yeah. 
Yes, exactly. And a thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's for sure. It's uh, it's pretty stereotypical, but it's that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened, you know. And yeah. do, do you think that at the end, that more that than your technical background, that's what got you into looking alternatives, financial alternatives such as Bitcoin? Well, I, I have to say that I stumbled into Bitcoin because of the technical stuff, um, because I was uh, just interested in like, what is this new system, this distributed system that nobody controls. From a technical standpoint, that's very interesting. And then once I started digging, and then I realized the economic part of it, and then I was, my eyes were open around, like, it was actually after watching Andreas's video, uh, there's this really good video called Currency Wars, Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, and he talked about this like global fight to eradicate cash and how governments around the world were collapsing and putting economic controls on and eliminating cash. And he talked about Greece and Cyprus and uh, Argentina and Venezuela and like everything like that. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is happening for real. And then I started thinking about my background, where I came from. And then I, you know, then I asked my parents, it was actually recently where I was like, what happened to our money? Like, how do, how do we leave the country? And that's when they told me about this whole $100 per person thing. And, that, and the light bulb went off for me because I realized that I had actually lived through this exact thing that he was talking about that's happening all over the world. Um, but now I have like a, a real connection with it, you know? But yeah, it wasn't because of my background. I never thought about it because it was so, well, I was so little when it happened that um, I didn't really think about the economics of it until I got into Bitcoin. Yeah, so it came to technological first, and then the Russian flashbacks. Yeah, come for the technology, stay for the sound money, that's what they say. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, I got very interested in one thing, because we have to get out of the field of the end of the world right now. Mm -hmm. we, we, we're going to light, we, let's lighten up a little bit. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to start mumbling in Russian and stuff. <laughs> no, no. Um, you mentioned that you have a, that you had a, at the time a music startup. Mm -hmm. So let's get into the music field because as a Bitcoiner, is it safe to say that you have a favorite musician in the field? Favorite musician? Yeah. Uh, sure, I have a favorite band. <laughs> Which one? Uh, probably would say Tool. Okay. You know, it's yes, a. I, no, there's no person on this planet that doesn't know about Tool. Okay. okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I thought it was some kind of niche band until they became like number one on iTunes. <laughs> and then you were, and you were like conflicted because you don't like that. How no, many right, people I'm, are like in my, my favorite band? It's supposed to yeah, be secret. <laughs> it's supposed to be secret, exactly. That's what my wife said because she was like, she was literally uh, so surprised because she'd only ever hear like me and like five friends talk about Tool. So she thought it was a complete mystery band that like the five of us liked and then she was like so blown away when it started tapping the charts and we were like yeah no this is real like they sell out arenas and stuff um but <laughs> like she never believed me <laughs> oh you never knew because she never left the house because oh, yeah. okay yeah technology uh, person yeah i get it <laughs> no that's not funny um actually that, that very well described me when i was a kid for sure uh i definitely spent my childhood in the basement but now nowadays i get out more <laughs> okay that didn't, that didn't come out right like when they did it, they, when they finally let me out of the basement, I discovered yeah, something. <laughs> that I discovered music. Yeah, yeah, no, I love Tool. I love Tool. I don't care if everybody else likes Tool because they should, because it's a great band. 
Okay, shout out to Tool. And uh, well, but how about the musicians that have getting uh, have been getting involved in the cryptocurrency field? Because, for example, I know it's no Tool, but um, how about RAC? You know, Rack. Um, Who's that? RAC. It's it's the name of of oh, the musician. Oh yeah? RAC. I don't know. I don't know this. Uh, maybe I don't know you this like thing. him. He's yeah? he, okay. he was. Well, maybe you won't. <laughs> he was into he was into Ethereum back in 2017. Okay. And okay. um, yeah, he was one of the first musicians that actually got into it. Uh, I mean, I remember that like Imogen Heap was into like some kind of Imogen uh, Heap. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Let me see. There was some kind of. I remember she was trying to launch some kind of like uh, like a music coin or some blockchain thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> Who knows? Okay. Um, no, who knows, really? And uh, you also have Aiken, you know, the, I think he's a rapper. Mm. He was also into Yeah, it. I'm so behind on like current trends in music. Like I have my bands that I used to listen to in college and that's like, that's it. I'm like an what old What kind band. of Bitcoiner are you? You don't I know, say, really. okay, I, I'm going to throw <laughs> one at you that you have to know, you even if you haven't this. heard her. <laughs> what about Tatiana Moroz? You know? Oh she's, yes, I know her. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes, I've seen her at some conferences. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely some... I, I don't actually listen to the music because I was too busy listening to Tool. Like, yeah, what? exactly. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I know what works for me. I like I like Tool. I like the, the complexity of the music and, you know, that's what it is. But I'll tell you what, um, there's a lot of musicians interested in, like, blockchain stuff, but I feel like a lot of it's maybe a little overhyped. Um, a lot of it's, like aspirational like they want to do something I, and i get it there's there was a lot of cool ideas that i heard um, when i got into the space like in 2016 there was a lot of um like we will have you know music on the blockchain and people will pay money directly to artists and all this kind of stuff um but not like not much came of it as far as i know um so i think it's interesting but it might be in my opinion it's a little too early and i think what's going to happen is that this stuff will get built but it'll probably get built uh, as something that's probably on top of Bitcoin and maybe on Lightning Network, um, and we will see some some services around that, um, because a lot of the early implementations they're they're not going to really scale, right? Like okay, now let's talk to... about your frustrations as a person with a technological background who actually gets Bitcoin, knows how the blockchain works. What frustrates you the most? in the ecosystem when it's about applications, the people who says they're going to applicate this to this certain field that you know it's not going to work or haven't worked, but there's still the overhype. Where do you, do you think there's the overhype that frustrates you the most? Um, I mean, I, I would agree that there's a lot of hype. I think I lived through another hype bubble in like 2006 when the word cloud just became a thing. And, um, you know, at the time I was working on a cloud startup that was actually like actual cloud, like we were doing something similar to, you know, helping people um, deploy applications to, to uh, servers and stuff like that in an automated way. But the word cloud became abused and it was just stuck to every like startup until it just became meaningless. And then it became just a word for the Internet, right? Like when we say now that you use cloud hosted email, all we're saying is that it's just uh, like on the internet. Um, but the same thing is happening, I think, with the blockchain. And like everybody thinks that the word blockchain just magically solves uh, every problem in their industry, whether it be like supply chain or health or, you know, whatever. Um, but 
there's a lot of there's a lot of problems there, right? Uh, the the blockchain the idea of the blockchain is it was invented for Bitcoin, and the whole purpose of it is to make Bitcoin very very hard to change. Like the whole purpose of Bitcoin as an asset is to pay for security on that blockchain and to make it immutable. And so it's really really slow, and it's supposed to be slow. The reason it's slow is because um, we need to keep it decentralized to make it actually hard to change. And that kind of concept is really good for if you want to try to like implement money, right? Um, but, but everybody started taking that same concept and tried to build different kinds of applications on it. But all you see is prototypes, 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 and nothing's really coming to market. And a lot of it's because people haven't really figured out that the stuff doesn't scale. It's not supposed to scale. And so now we have kind of two things happening. We have Bitcoin, which is money. And then we have like all this other stuff, which is just essentially fancy ways of talking about databases, which I mean, it's not that interesting, even if it does like maybe five companies that do, um, you know, health data get together and has shared database and they call it blockchain. That's fine, but that's not really what blockchain is. Um, and it doesn't really change the world in any way. It maybe makes the operations somewhat more efficient or, or not. I don't know. Um, so it's not like I'm not frustrated. I don't honestly care. I just try to pay less attention to that stuff and focus more on what I think is relevant. And, and I that have is to pay less attention to it because otherwise I will become frustrated. Yeah, I mean that's what it is. Because you you want to like focus on the what what matters. I, I try to stay positive about it, right? Like we were trying to change the world here. And the thing is, uh, I think underlying the, the idea of blockchain is letting people earn money in new and creative ways. I think that is powerful. Okay, so I think like letting musicians in some country that has no banking infrastructure earn money um, by publishing their music without any intermediary is a really cool idea. But what you have to realize about that is uh, that the money you earn has to be actually money and not something that is, uh, that is, that's value is going to zero over time. Right? So the money itself has to hold value and that money is Bitcoin. Um, all these other tokens, I mean, look at the chart of any other token. It's basically gone to zero over the last couple of years. So if people were thinking that they were going to use like audio coin as their money, that didn't turn out to be a thing uh, that went to zero. So you have to build things on Bitcoin if you want it to be money. And I don't, I'm not saying that we're not going to see these really cool use cases. I just think it's too early. Um, I think give it another 10 years and see what comes out of, you know, out of that after we get the money part right. Okay, there's a harsh truth, a harsh standing. <laughs> For all the entrepreneurs that wants that want to be their own CEO, specialist in blockchain. I mean, but, you know, I <laughs> I was involved in a lot of startups that failed, right? Before Reverb, which was very successful. Before that, I, I was in six other startups and they all failed for a variety of reasons. But a lot of the reasons why they failed was uh, product market fit, which is to say we built something that was really cool that nobody wanted or that was too early for the market and the market didn't need. Um, and that's what's happening today, I think, in the blockchain space is most of what's being built is being built on the wrong technology at the wrong time, and it will probably fail very badly <laughs> after billions of dollars have been wasted. But that's how people learn. Yeah, and then money can go to people like us, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah, fine. To, yeah, yeah, totally fine. Just keep it's it the free, mar free market at work. <laughs> Hell yeah, capitalism. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want, I want, you know, these things to succeed. Like I said, I'd love to have less middlemen in the world in general and like less rent seeking and more money going to users and, and people monetizing their data and people being, you know, like paid for their attention. All these concepts that are like associated with blockchain are really cool. We're just not there yet and they're not being done right. So let's just wait.
Let's just wait then. Thank you so much for your time today, John. It has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, then like it, share it, subscribe, tell your friends about it, tell your mom about it, and then tell me in the comments who you'd like me to interview next, because all suggestions will be noted. All right, gotta go. Until next time. Thank <laughs> you.